This is Dan Wharton Uncancelled. Let's go. Trans women's place in sport is one of the most hotly contested issues in the world right now. And in the latest development, a six-foot trans goalie who used to play men's football has been selected for England University's women's side. So this is 32-year-old Blair Hamilton, who was born as a biological male but identifies as female. And they will take one of the coveted spots in the national squad within weeks. It's the latest lightning rod in the debate after cyclist Emily Bridges, who competed as a man until a few weeks ago, was barred from racing in the national championships against women on Saturday. And prior to that, of course, six foot one trans Amelia Thomas drew worldwide attention as she fouled past female Olympian Emma Wayant in the NCAA Women's Championships. Well, my next guest is a legend of the female sporting world, Team GB's third fastest marathon runner ever and Commonwealth Games medalist winner, Marayama Uchi, says female sportswomen are now too scared to speak out against transgender athletes for fear of being cancelled. Well, luckily, Mara isn't scared, and I'm delighted to say she joins me now. Uh, Mara, this is a real concern, isn't it? The fact that female athletes are too scared to vocalise what's going on in their sport for fear of being cancelled. Absolutely. We heard last week that the female cyclists who were to be up against uh, male-born Emily Bridges on Saturday were too scared to speak up. And I'm not surprised because British Cycling have a policy which states that you must accept somebody in the gender in which they present. So if you have a biological male claiming to be a woman, you cannot challenge that. In the last few days, uh, several female athletes in athletics, uh, some of whom are currently competing, um, bravely spoke up and they faced abuse on, on Twitter, being called transphobes, people targeting their sources of income. Uh, so we know that female athletes are abused, are silenced, you know, just just told to shut up. And so it's not surprising that they are scared to speak up. No, indeed, especially when if you look at British Cycling, for example, they have an organisation that seems to care more about what Stonewall have to say than what their own female competitors think. Yeah, British Cycling issued a statement on, I believe it was Wednesday last week, mm. announcing that Emily Bridges wouldn't be competing. Not once in that statement were women's sport or female athletes mentioned. Not once. It was all about Emily Bridges and inclusion of trans and non-binary athletes. This is about the future of women's sport. And I've seen evidence that British Cycling has been captured by Stonewall uh, and other groups pushing gender identity ideology. And unfortunately, Stonewall misrepresents the law. The Equality Act is very clear. It has a very clear single-sex exemption for sport, which allows for sex to be for sport, sorry, to be divided by sex into male and female, and to you know ban biological males from competing in the female category. I completely agree, and Mara, I think we're together on this. Uh, and some people would say it's an extreme point of view. I don't think it is. I think we just have to be very clear that no matter what the sport is, 
people can only compete in the sex that they were biologically born into. Because if you open it up in any other way, you go down a slippery slope, I believe, to threatening the very future of women's sport. Yes, I agree completely. The reason sport is separated by sex is because males have massive physical advantages compared to females. For example, 10% in running, 19% uh, in jumping, 160% in punching power. And every year, the very best female in, let's say, the 100-metre dash is beaten by many thousands of men and boys. So if women's sport did not exist... Female athletes who are household names like myself, Paula Radcliffe, Sharon Davis, we would be nobodies. Nobody would have ever heard of us. So this is why women's sport exists. It is based, it is created for people who are biologically female and therefore males should not be in it under any circumstances. Uh, you mentioned Blair Hamilton in your introduction. If we look at team sports, uh, because a biological male is included on the England University's team, that means a female has been excluded from that team. If we look at the sporting, the sort of activities involved in football, running, as I said, males outperform females 10%. Uh, jumping, which often, you know, in head, jumping to head the ball in football, 19%. Height, males are on average 9% taller than females. They have longer limbs. Their femurs are on average 9% longer. Their humerus bones, which is the upper arm bone, 12% longer. So for somebody who plays in goal, as Blair Hamilton does, being male, provides a massive advantage. And oh, the, the fix which sports bodies have come up with uh, to allow males into the female category is testosterone suppression. Uh, but the evidence is very clear this does not work to remove male advantage. And things like height and, and limb length uh, never change. You know, skeleton shape never changes under any amount of testosterone suppression. So it is unfair for females science. having males in their category. No, indeed. All of the science that I'm looking at makes it increasingly clear that no matter how much you bring down the hormone levels, you cannot reverse the impact of male puberty. And it's interesting you speak about female team sports. I mean, I'm a big supporter of the London Pulse uh, netball team, and I was at their game over the weekend. And... There's seven people in a netball team on a court at one time. If even one of them was a biological male, you, you might as well wave goodbye to a to a fair game. Yeah. And 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 yeah, I just I, sorry, you come in. I, I've played. I mean, I grew up playing netball as a female-only game, and then as an adult, I played mixed netball. It was a totally different game, you know. Yeah. We were up against these tall, massive, strong males. It was it was completely different. You know, males do not belong in in women's sport. And your viewers need to ask themselves on a on a women's sports team, whether it's netball, football, hockey, whatever. How many males on a women's sports team is okay? One hundred percent, sixty percent, twenty percent. You know, if you look at it like that. You know, even one male on a women's sports team is unacceptable and it's unfair. So, it is. you know, any male advantage in the female category is unfair. You will hear people like Joanna Harper uh, from Loughborough University. She's frequently in the media talking about what she calls meaningful competition. And what she means by that is if we can reduce the male advantage somewhat, kind of, a bit, 
then it provides meaningful competition in the female category. This is a nonsense. What female athletes need is fair competition, and you cannot have that with male-bodied people in the female category. Couldn't agree more. Thank you so much for being brave enough to speak out, Mara Yamauchi, because I know uh, what personal abuse it, it brings you, but you're doing the right thing, and yeah. it's a pleasure to have you today. Of course, we do bring you both sides of the story here at GB News. So in a statement, I believe it was released over the weekend, Emily Bridges, that trans... Uh, cyclist said, I have provided both British Cycling and the UCI with medical evidence that I meet the eligibility criteria Excuse me for transgender female cyclists. I am an athlete and I just want to race competitively again. No one should have to choose between being who they are and participating in the sport that they love. Now, Neil Oliver is today's outsider. While many used the weekend to reflect on the sacrifice of 255 British servicemen who helped recapture the Falkland Islands 40 years ago, the left was busy concocting a new front in its war on British history. The Guardian decided it was appropriate to call it the Malvinas War, which is how Argentina's murderous generals referred to the Falklands. They proudly trumpeted an article written by Argentina's own foreign minister, Santiago Cafero, saying the dispute over the islands isn't finished. This tweet by columnist Samantha Smith summed up the outrage felt by many. She wrote, it was the Falklands War, not the Malvinas War. They are the Falkland Islands, not Isles Melina. The Falkland Islands are a British overseas territory by choice, and we are proud to have defended their sovereignty. Neil Oliver joins me now. Neil, what did you make of this from The Guardian? Surprised? Uh, not surprised. I thought it was tasteless uh, to, to carry a, a headline like that at, at such a time. You know, the, the 40th anniversary mm. of the war in which 255... Uh, a British servicemen and, and 649, I think, Argentinian servicemen died. But uh, to, to take that moment to, to raise the spectre of it's being called of those of that archipelago being called Malvinas, I, th I thought was just in in very poor taste. I don't think it's unexpected at all because I think, as you allude to, there is and has been for a long time an ongoing push to uh, to suggest that everything. Britain did in the past was bad and only bad, uh, that the British Empire was only bad, uh, that all of Britain's aspirations, you know, for the past, you know, 200, 300 years were imperialist and colonialist, and the only negative connotations are to be associated with those ideas. So it, it, it's not a surprise. Um, I think it was almost automatic. You could have predicted that the knee-jerk reaction from the left would be that Britain's claim on the Falklands archipelago has to be wrong, you know, despite the fact that whenever polls are taken of, uh, you know, whenever the people of the Falkland Islands are asked about what they want in the future, they are, they've always been staunchly of the opinion that they want to remain British. Uh, and I would, have, I would have thought that that should be the most... Um, you know, the most significant and the most telling aspect of the, of the story. No, I completely agree. And of course, Neil, it's this sort of hypocrisy from the likes of The Guardian that really gets me too. Because of course, when it comes uh, to Ukraine, they're very insistent that Kiev should be spelt K-Y-I-V and not K-I-E-V. 
uh, because they say it's only fair that we outsiders get our language right and that occupiers uh, must not set rules. So why is it OK for Ukraine, but it's not OK when it comes to the Falklands? There's a real hypocrisy there. There's a mismatch in thinking there. Well, you, you, you use the word occupiers, which is, I think, is very interesting in, in that context, because it's probably worth stating something that ought to be very obvious, really, that um, uh, Spain, Britain, Portugal, France, and to some extent the US, uh, were all, all took a turn prowling around you know, down in the in the South Atlantic, around that archipelago, and and in other areas besides, uh, Malvinas is uh, is a Spanish is a Spanish name. Uh, I, I think etymologically it relates to uh, uh, settlers from San Malo in Brittany who were there in the 18th century. That's the that's the the origin of that name for that that archipelago. Even Argentina is a Spanish name. It, it means, it's an adjective that means something like silvery, and it relates to uh, how excited the Spanish were about how much silver was to be had uh, coming out of that part of South America, in fact, South America in general. Uh, and so, to some extent, Malvinas is as incongruous in that context, you might say, as the Falklands, because nobody really makes any reference or makes any remembrance of the fact that the indigenous population of uh, of Tierra del Fuego, Patagonia, uh, were were um, re were uh, completely destroyed uh, by the Spanish and the Portuguese uh, in the 15th and 16th centuries. You know, the European settlement in that part of the world, you know, saw to the deaths of 90% of the indigenous population. You know, whatever, if there, if there was ever an indigenous name for that archipelago 300 miles or so off the coast, then it's long been forgotten. Uh, you know, and, and to just suggest that the Argentinian claim is superior, well, it's, it's almost a philosophical question because all Europeans in South America are cuckoos in the nest. We're, we were all invaders and interlopers into that part of the world. And then through the 1700s and the 1800s and the, and the 1900s and, 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 and the, 20th, the 21st century, that we're still fighting over somewhere that, <laughs> if you go back far enough, it mm. belonged to the indigenous people. You know, so the, so the fact that there's an ongoing dispute about whether we should call it Malvinas or Falklands you know, is to completely forget something very interesting in historical terms, which is, which is to remember that we were all invaders in that part of the world. Indeed, no, uh, we're not talking about the indigenous people uh, in this case, are we? No, very good point, Neil. Uh, I just wanted to ask you finally about some of the claims by the Argentine Foreign Minister Santiago Cafero in, in this piece uh, for The Guardian. He writes, the United Kingdom alleges that there is no sovereignty dispute over these territories. Why then did the British government negotiate with Argentina during that period? Now, further down, he says, Argentina is, is not a threat to anyone. But it doesn't sound to me like Argentina has given up on the Falklands. It, it, is, it is true to say uh, that in, I, th I think in the 1950s and 60s, maybe into the 1970s, that there were 
uh, I, I, there were negotiations and, and conversations that went on between Argentina and Britain about the future of of the Falkland Islands. That's true to say. Uh, but but then events were overtaken when when uh, when uh, Galtieri and his junta, uh, you know, in an attempt to to prop up a failing regime and desperate for a quick, glamorous victory, went after, uh, you know, the invasion of the Falkland Islands. Uh, you know, so so events events took a turn at that point. But I think I would I would in the in the modern context I've mentioned the. Well, you know, the, maybe the, the prehistoric past of that archipelago and the, and the, you know, the 16th, 17th, 18th century of that part of the world, but I think surely what matters most is the are the wishes of the the, the population that is there now. Yes. You know the the, the yes. Falklands. The Falklands had a you know the, there was a there was a an, an industry established I think mm. in the 1800s which was based around salvaging wrecked ships. Uh, then there was a, a, a Scottish, I think it was Scottish farmers who were settled there most successfully, and they began to rear cheviot sheep, and the and that that industry, that agriculture, became very profitable and it lasted and it was successful for a long time. But but the fact remains that the population, the settled population that have been there for the longest, in what we might reasonably describe as recent history, have been Scottish. Or British, and whenever they have been asked up until the present day what they want their future to be, they want it to be British. Yeah. And in, in and that I agree. context, that is what and on the 40th yeah. anniversary of the war Indeed. in which 255 soldiers were lost, for the Guardian to just revert to calling that archipelago Malvinas just seemed like a deliberate slap in the yeah. face. No, indeed. Perfect point to end it, Neil. Thank you so much. We'll speak again next week. And of course, Neil hosts his very own show, 7 p.m. Saturday nights here on GB News, and it's unmissable. It's time now for Uncancelled. And this is where the world's top commentators speak out on controversial issues without the fear of the cancel culture sweeping the rest of the media. After two years of relentless scaremongering and promoting draconian policies to restrict people's freedoms, it's really no surprise that faith in the mainstream media is at an all-time low. The narrative of fear spouted by doomsday scientists was adopted by the MSN without any scrutiny and freedom-loving Brits feel betrayed by media who were cheerleaders for several ruinous lockdowns. But this information crisis is having a detrimental effect on the military crisis in Ukraine, as many folks struggle to regain trust in a media that misled them so regularly throughout the pandemic. Well, writer and lawyer Alan Dale became a bit of an expert on Ukraine when researching her debut novel, The Hand That Signed the Paper 30 Years Ago. And she joins me now. Helen, I know you've been looking into this whole issue of distrust in the media and how the COVID coverage is related to how people feel about the way the mainstream media is covering the war. Uh, but let me just start by posing this question to you. Why on earth should we trust a word that the BBC News, ITV News or Sky News tell us after the way they've reported COVID over the past two years? I perhaps should provide a little bit of context here. I wrote this book, The Hand That Signed the Paper. It's about Ukraine. It's set in Ukraine. And I perceive, for some reason, for, for stuff in this book to be perceptive on this crisis. I, I, for example, I foresaw the invasion, Putin's invasion. So that's the background to this. And quite a lot of my commentary initially was just 
Ukrainian history, a bit about the culture, a bit about the Second World War, a bit about the Holodomor, the Ukrainian famine, and uh, why, and why, for example, Vladimir Putin was constantly referring to Ukrainian Nazis, and that has actually happened again today in another um, uh, publication from Izvestia in, in Russia. And then it became very clear to me, particularly on the Nazis point, I spent a lot of time having to point out that whilst there used to be Nazis in Ukraine, there aren't now. And I, I, my commentary and my coverage began to change from fairly straight historical information based on the hand that signed the paper to having to rebut various claims that people were making about the war in Ukraine from the quite outlandish. I had people suggesting that there was no war in Ukraine, uh, that all the people pictures you were seeing of injured people, both Russians and Ukrainians, by the way, in this case, were all crisis actors. They weren't real. They were just acting. So that was one e extreme. And then you got other things. You got various other people repeating pro-Putin propaganda. And it was quite extraordinary to me because these were people who, some, some of whom I am aware of on social media and have been for some years, um, were supporting the Canadian truckers in Ottawa on civil liberties basis, which I was as well, and were now had suddenly decided that everything that proceeded from the mouth of a dictator and a dictatorship was proceeding as if from the mouth of God. And I sat down and I wrote a few pieces about this. I, I wrote a um, big piece for Law and Liberty, uh, which is where I'm senior writer in the United States, wrote some pieces for CapEx. Um, I've been on uh, media outlets across the spectrum, not just GB News, trying to explain what I thought was going on. And my initial thought was what you described at the beginning, that the press disgraced itself with COVID, particularly the, the fact checkers who just produced, they were supposed to be checking facts and they produced nonsense, often enumerate nonsense. It, the press was badly exposed for innumeracy. You also had the problem of your know, lockdowns were bad and then they were good and then they were bad, you know, and then coronavirus came from a bat in a wet market in Wuhan and then it didn't. Then it came from, from a lab and then maybe it didn't again and now maybe it did. Look, all of this constant wrenching about of the public in the name of the science when the scientists themselves mm. hadn't worked it out. So at first in my big piece for Law and Liberty I wrote on the, on the Ukraine war and this phenomenon, I blamed mainly the COVID co coverage. But in the most recent piece I wrote for CapEx, which I, is called The Fog of News, which you've kindly retweeted of mine, is I, I think it goes good. back. It goes back before COVID, and um, it goes back to some of the coverage of Brexit in this country, which was very irresponsible, and a lot of the the pollsters need a whack for that. Not all of them. I mean, the old wait right. for Servation joke is a legitimate one. Servation were very good, and as a general rule, YouGov seem to be, but they both have fallen off the perch at various times. So bad, bad and dishonest polling, um, bad and dishonest coverage of the debates in the um, in 2019, like the way, for example, unless you were a Westminster insider, I was covering Brexit for The Australian, which is the main national daily in Australia. People just outside of the bubble did not realise the extent to which John Burko was loathed and hated by all sides of the house and was an appalling bully, this kind of thing. And then all of the, and then in the United States, they had their own parallel universe with Donald Trump, which bled a little bit over here, but mm. not that much. 
And so all of this just created a perfect storm that ran into the, the abysmal COVID coverage. Got it. And now we've got a situation where people are being sceptical of aspects of the war in Ukraine, which they shouldn't be sceptical of. And yet you've got people not seeming to understand that there is a war on. You do have the fog of news. You need to take both sides' propaganda um, with a pinch of salt. I mean, obviously, the Russians are telling more lies. Uh, they have more to hide. They are the dictatorship, the lies that they have told, for example, about the atrocities in Bucha, north of north of Kiev, are a good example of that. But by the same token, you may recall early in the war, there were all this footage of the ghost of Kiev, apparently a Ukrainian air ace who had 10 kills, and uh, it was footage from a video game. So everybody has to keep their wits about them. And I say that as someone who strongly su supports Ukrainian self-determination against this invasion, that we've now created a rod for our own back and with dishonest coverage of a number of things. And I, in my piece mm. for CapEx, I talk about the trans issue uh, where Leah Thomas, the face, was photoshopped to make it yes. look more feminine and the chin exactly. was narrowed and the Adam's so apple So the media was, was... continue even today, Helen, not to do themselves any favours. But it's They're a fascinating They're not doing any favours, no. And, and, of course, you can read that piece by coming to one of our Twitter pages, Helen Dale. Thank you so much. Dan Wooten here again. Thank you so much for listening to this edition of my podcast, Uncancelled. Did you like what you hear? Well, remember to subscribe, rate and review and join me for more newsmaking interviews, fiery debate and free speech on Dan Wooten tonight every Monday to Thursday from 9pm till 11pm on GB News.